Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, everyone. This is Skyline's Cinematic Podcast, and I'm John Elledge. As you hear this, uh, all being well, unless something has gone horrendously wrong, uh, either with my life or with our travel arrangements, I will be on holiday in France. Um, so, so uh, this isn't a normal episode of Skyline's. Uh, this is a kind of holiday special in which. Uh, to be honest, I've stolen this idea shamelessly from, from uh, my former colleague, Caroline Crampton, who took the summer off on her own podcast, which is called She Done It, and it's all about the golden age of, of murder mysteries, and it's quite a wonderful series, which you should definitely listen to, uh, because Caroline is fantastic. Anyway, um, what she has done is she's taken the summer off the podcast and got permission from some mates of hers to put out episodes of their podcast on kind of connected topics. And as someone feeling a little bit overworked these days, that sounded like a lovely idea. So rather than rush out an episode of Skyline until they really have one, um, what you're going to hear instead is an episode of a podcast called Map Corner. Uh, it's hosted and produced by a guy called Royfield Brown, who longtime listeners may remember as uh, our first producer on Skylines, an occasional guest. Uh, he was, in fact, the guy who, who kind of nudged me to do the podcast in the first place. Um, on this particular episode of Map Corner, um, there is actually an interview with with yours truly. So this isn't the last of me you're going to be hearing. I am going to be talking about what, what is about maps that I love and also Helsinki again, randomly. Uh, but there's a whole lot more in it than that. Uh, it, they talk a lot about, um, Royfield and his, his co-host Claire talk a lot about maps and cities and transport systems and all the kind of stuff we do around here. Basically, if you listen to Skylines, then you will, you will enjoy the sort of stuff they talk about on Map Corner. So shamelessly give myself uh, a bit of time off. Um, I just thought I'd run that. So. You should, you should, you should keep listening. And if you enjoy it, you should subscribe to Map Corner as well. Uh, but don't, uns- don't unsubscribe from Skylines. We, we need you. Anyway, all being well, I'll be back in two weeks. Happy holidays. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you, and state names intrigue you, 
If atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing. If you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps, brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royful Brown, who's 37 degrees and 48 minutes north and 122 degrees and 16 minutes west, which puts me in Oakland in California. And as always, I'm joined by the wonderful Claire Asprey. Hello. Uh, Claire, uh, do you want to know some Oakland facts? Go on. Right. Uh, Population of Oakland, 425,000. I must admit, I thought it was a little bit more which means it's the largest city in Alameda County. It's the eighth largest in California. I thought it would have been further up the list, actually. And the 45th largest city in the United States. It just kind of shows you the scale of this place, because um, 425,000 as a population would put you, what, about six in the UK. What would you have bigger than that? Obviously, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow. And then I'm starting to scratch yeah. my head. Liverpool, maybe bigger, Leeds. Maybe seventh, maybe seventh. Yeah. Anyway, shows you the size of this country. Uh, folks, uh, Map Corner is the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and kind of to travel and to cities and all things classophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place. Claire, what is today's show all about? Today, we are talking to John Elledge about transport maps because transport mm-hmm. is his great love. Um, and we've got some calls, uh, partly on transport, uh, from Jane and Glyn. Uh, we've also got some really interesting calls around other maps that have taken people's interest. So from Kathy, Pat and Catherine, uh, all talking about maps or features of maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll be reviewing what people have been sharing on the social media. Cool. Uh, so it's one of those barnstorming, roaring episodes. And that's basically what you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely. Ooh. Although not uh, barnstorming in the sense that that's a rurally kind of thing, and we're mainly talking about city metro type maps. Okay. All right. So rip roaring, metropolitan, and urbanistic type show. Ooh. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic. So, folks, just before we commence with the show, why don't you go on to mapcorner.space? It's a slightly funny URL, but it's mapcorner.space. And you can um, go to our Map Corner shop because we've had um, a couple of people actually buy Map Corner mugs. So why don't you join them? So they're not just there by themselves. Uh, two people on planet Earth with Map Corner mugs. Go join them. And I believe they might even be a Map Corner uh, T-shirt. So you go on to mapcorner.space, hit shop, go buy yourself a mug. Um, you'd be, you'll look incredibly hip and cool. And why don't you post a picture of yourself with your mug when you get it onto social media? Don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, folks. It is the ideal way for us to get new recruits, new listeners to Map Corner. Go on there, write us a review, and uh, we will read your name out in a future episode, we promise. Um, First off, we always start the show with a little bit of an interview. John Elledge is a little bit of a pal of mine, and is a proper map nerd, and he runs a website all about maps and mapping. Here's our conversation.
Uh, John. You, Hello there. I, I've always, I've always held you in great esteem, sir, because well, you do. Glad someone else. Well, I'm sure there are many people. You do what I always wanted to do as a kid. You make a living out of maps. How is such a thing possible? Um, I haven't got the faintest idea. Um, I mean, how much backstory do you want here? Basically, the the idea was uh, handed down on, from on high by the owner of the New Statesman that we should do mm-hmm. something about cities and about how cities work. And so I was I was hired to launch that. And about um, literally the second day the website was up, well, firstly, it stopped being up. It fell over again instantly, as things tend to do if you kind of announce them without beta testing and so on. Mm. So I was very frustrated and shouting at the sky. And to kind of relieve the tension and give myself something to do while the techies did their thing, I uh, I found a proposal in some Transport for London document for what it termed the R25, like a railway loop around London. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at this map thinking, I think I can work out which lines that is it's connecting there. So I did a kind of like, you know, the sort of maps you get in a tube carriage showing you what stations the line serves. Yeah. And I made one of this kind of R25 proposal. And when the web, I then posted it when the site came back up and it just, the traffic on it just went mental. Uh, like, you know, it, it kind of sparked with the audience in a way nothing else had before. So it's like, okay, clearly this is going to be a website about maps. So, so it didn't exactly start off that way because I was trying to figure out when I was thinking of City Metric earlier, because that's the website that, that we're talking about. So when I was looking at City Metric earlier, I thought, did somebody take pity on you and say, this guy is just like so weird that we need to just build a whole hey, job you, around buddy. him? <laughs> or or is this kind of like nerd outreach? So which one out of the two is it? Um, I mean, it was sort of neither. Like, I wasn't doing this kind of stuff before. It's mm-hmm. not like I was... I was. I mean, I did a little bit of this kind of stuff for a website called Londonist, um, which I was a contributing editor on as a sideline for a long time. But my day job before before City Metric was, was very different. It was editing a, a business magazine for companies in the education sector. So it had absolutely nothing to do with, with this kind of nerdy map stuff at all. Um... But and 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 I got hired for reasons that had you know, it was a little bit because I'd done this sort of thing for Londonist, but it was also because I was just kind of in the mix of someone who was freelancing for the New Statesman, uh, and it just uh, my my then boss Helen Lewis just sort of thought I might be a good fit for this job, but I wasn't. It's not like I was like sat there sort of making these, like posting about maps on my own time or like you know, mm. trying to write about the tube the whole time. It was something I'd done occasionally for a different website, but it wasn't a day job. But that then somewhat disappoints me because I, I was going to say to this day I still draw maps, that that'd be a gross exaggeration. But I put you down completely as one of those kind of, um, you know, deep, you know, dyed in the wall kind of like map heads that, you know, he's always wondering about, well, you know, why don't we extend the tube line here and gets out a bit of pen and paper and a felt tip pen and, and whatever. And I kind of kind of gets going. But you're telling me oh, that yeah, really... a little bit. Like I, mm. I did that sort of stuff a little bit when I was a, when I was a nerdy little kid. Um, but it wasn't something I'd ever considered like this might be something, you know, I, I, I it was a pleasant surprise with that, with that kind of post about the, the the sort of London orbital rail thing I just described, it was a pleasant surprise to find out that there is actually an audience for this stuff. There are people who kind of mm. just really like these kind of speculative maps of metro networks. So 
even though Sissimetric is meant to be you know, a, a, a factual site, it's been kind of a rich vein of content for us to do, like, you know, fantasy metro networks for cities that don't have them. Um, and and it's kind of self-generating as well, because you, you run a couple of these things, and then people keep sending them to you. So, <laughs> what, what do you think it is about um, us people that love maps, us cartophiles, that we like imaginary maps, we like speculative maps, we like to, um, you know have our own version of the map what what do you think it says about us and about our obsession i mean i think the appeal of maps generally is the kind of the density of data like the amount of information you get in one flat image plus mm-hmm. the ability to kind of you know pinpoint yourself on it like my, my my grand unified theory of why like there is so much web traffic invariance on on london's tube map is there are nine million people in London, so there are nine million different conceptions of this city and wh- where the important places are and what it means and what this kind of place represents and so on. The one thing that everyone will have in common, no matter how old they are, where they are, sort of, you know, economically and so on, is is the tube map. It's the single point of reference that everyone can kind of coalesce around. So I think it's it's partly just you know people like kind of you know sort of what if narratives um but it's partly also it's a sort of way of like imagining changes to the city rather than the map in itself it's like you know well imagine if there was a tube line that went to peckham or something it is a thing that people can kind of like think about how it would reshape the city and their conception of it Mm. and you have one of your big obsessions apart from maps actually is trains as well so this is like a perfect storm for you isn't it a, a, a metro map or a transit map um i mean the, the not really the answer the john is actually. yes you, you, you're no, a big train no, like, I, I, no I, pre- I pretend to like trains on the i mean i like i like traveling by trains i think they're a great method of transport but mm. my interest in trains is sort of a subset of the interest in maps I'm not actually someone who gets a kick out of like you know different types of train or different engine models or anything like that. Um, but uh-huh. it is sometimes quite useful for sort of traffic purposes to pretend to be that person on the internet. Mm. Well, you had me completely utterly fooled. I thought you had a cagoule, an anorak, all that kind of stuff, and a little notebook, and you're at the end of the platform, you know, like noting what what uh, engines have gone by. I, re- I really thought you were that person. You had the look of that type of person, John. To be fair, hey, so this is the, you, you asked me to come on this podcast, and they just bloody <laughs> insulting me. This is, this is... It's called it's called bants. Gentle bants. I have sir. I have recently, um, well, about eight months ago now, I moved to a new a new flat which mm-hmm. overlooks a railway junction, which was not like this is not something I went looking for. I think it meant. It probably means that the the building is slightly cheaper than than similarly nice flats would be that didn't overlook railway junctions, and it was quite convenient that I can sort of enjoy the fact that I can see trains go past all the time, and it doesn't bother me that it's a bit noisy and so on. Um, but it's not something I specifically went looking for. I just kind of made it a bit cheaper. Mm. Um, the London Tube map is absolutely iconic. Um... What is it about transit maps, do you think, that... Well, you've kind of mentioned it slightly before. It's about the, it's about the density of, of data, but also uh, the extraneous data being removed. And then there is this kind of yeah. perfect mulch, isn't there, of graphics and typeface and colour. 
I mean, um, when done well, they're very beautiful things. Mm. But I think it is largely that, you know, the city as an idea is so complicated. And a metro map just sort of boils it down to its sort of, you know, essentials to like, you know, here, here are how all the places kind of interconnect to each other. And even though, like, they're inherently a little bit misleading, it gives you a sense of, of the shape of a city um, in a way that, like, if you kind of look at sort of a full-blown street map or something, it can be uh, a bit overwhelming. But if you look at a metro map... You have a sense that, you know, okay, here's the financial district and here's where all the entertainment is and here's how you get to the suburbs and so on. It just kind of like condenses it down to something you can kind of take in at a glance. Mm. And they become, and they're totally totemic and iconic for for that city, aren't they? Like you can't, when you think of London, um, in terms of on a graphic form, it could be the course of the Thames, it could be the underground uh, logo, you know, the red kind of circle with, with, with a blue line. But and, and definitely the, the tube maps there. There are certain things which just fundamentally, subconsciously, just say London. Even like like the color red on a bus just says London, and the tube tube map is definitely there. Um, so London's came first. Henry Beck. We know we know all of that. Um, which city does it badly? Um. Oh, there's a question. Um, I don't know if I can immediately think of a city that does it that does it badly. I mean, I actually had my one of my one of my silly heresies is I think the London tube map is terrible these days. I think it's lost a lot of the simplicity that made it mm. an attractive prospect in the first place. Um, but like different cities do it completely differently. Like Paris, for example, doesn't really kind of stick to the the line about the the, the rule about you know forty five degree angles and so on because the the system is just too complicated. It just wouldn't fit that model. So it has it has a slightly different approach. Um, I've always find found something that kind of quite irritates me about the Chicago transit map for the mm-hmm. yeah or the elevated railway is that. Um, the station names tend to refer to the junctions that will be, I, I'm going to get the names wrong, but it could be like Lake slash State is the junction of Lake Street and State Street or whatever. Those, those two streets probably don't interconnect, but you know, it's that kind of format. But the map simplifies it and only includes the first one of those, which means that on the Chicago transit map, there are three different stations just labeled Chicago, which I find a little bit irritating. And I think that's kind of unhelpful if you're a tourist or something. You know, just, oh, maybe by, maybe by Chicago Station. It's like, well, which one? So your boss down at uh, New Statesman's house says, John, we need you to go to some blah-flung city somewhere. Uh, all expenses paid. Uh, they throw you on a throw you on an airplane. Uh, you jump off. You've got a, you've got a very old fashioned idea of how of how much money there is in journalism. I've got to say, but yeah, yeah it's something like that. <laughs> you know what it is. It's, it's I'm, more I'm, like, John, I'm a romantic. That's what it is. Yeah. I'm a romantic. It's more like I, 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 someone asks me if I'll go to their conference and says, "Oh, we'll we'll, we'll pay for it," and that's how I get together far from places. Ah, um, yeah. So I got we so we got together Finland the other week. That was fun. Well, tell tell me about Helsinki. Tell me about the city. Tell me about um, you know, yeah. Your first impressions of Helsinki, and then also about its metro map, if it even has one. So, I mean, Helsinki, it was, yeah, I liked it. It was kind of, it looked more sort of Russian than I was expecting, or, or at least mm-hmm. someone someone with me who has been to Russia told me it looked more kind of Russian than than um, Scandinavian or Eastern European. It's very wide boulevards. It's not very, it's not a very dense city. There's kind of a lot of mm-hmm. space. 
It doesn't have... It has a single metro line that's only about 10, 20 years old, I think. Uh, but what it does have that's very nice is trams, these beautiful green and gold things that are, uh, you know, absolutely stunning-looking things that cover, that cover the city quite nicely. Um... And, and they just look, they just look gorgeous. I know I just keep repeating myself, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of trams as, as a as a kind of method of getting around a smaller city. Mm. Um, the only the only slight downside to them is they're quite difficult to get onto if you're in any way mobility impaired or you've got a pushchair or something like that. So that's that's not great. Um, but from a purely aesthetic point of view, they're wonderful. Well, it surprises me that they that they're going to be hard to get onto. I would have thought that. Now let me get my Scandic, Scandinavians and my Nordics in the right the right way around. Finland and Nordic, Nordic not Scandinavian. That's correct. Yes, yes. Ooh, I, I got it right. Um, I thought those folks went big in for access and and all that malarkey. I think it's just that it's quite an old system. So, like, you've got to remember that this mm. this is a relatively recent phenomenon. That it's something that that go that is is considered at all in the planning system so on city metric a couple of years ago we actually did a, a piece about how there, there is there is a version of the london tube map that's kind of the accessible version like mm-hmm. I, I mean like the, the main one now does kind of show which stations you can get into in the wheelchair and so on but there is a version that just shows the bits that you can access if you're if you're in a wheelchair and obviously it's a much reduced system but it's still you know it's still quite significant you can get to a lot of the stations Someone did a version of the same kind of map for the Paris Metro, most of which is sort of, you know, 80, 90, 100 years old. And it's literally just the one line. It's line 14, which opened in the 90s, is the only accessible line. Because most of them, uh, generally, you have to go up and down a lot of stairs to get to the Paris Metro, because it just wasn't considered in the planning. So it's, it's a relatively recent thing that actually... People building these systems are like, you know, we need we need people in wheelchairs and with pushchairs to be able to get onto these things as well. Um, so I assume it's just the trams in the Helsinki predate that phenomenon. Mm. So wide boulevards, uh, more Russian than uh, Nordic or Scandinavian than you would have thought. Uh, what else was a, a, a big surprise about going to Helsinki? Because I must admit, my my innate knowledge of Helsinki is just about zero. I can find it it's, on a yeah. map, but that's just just about it, really. Um, so it's a very it, it's all on waterfront. Like um, we went to the. One of the main parks with the with the Sibelius monument in it, and we were sat having a nice, a nice, a nice drink by a, by what looked like a sort of well, almost like a pond rather than a lake, maybe a lake. But you know, it's it didn't look like that big a body of water, and it was mm-hmm. only when they looked at a map and you realised it was actually a, the pond turned into a lake, which turned into an inlet, which turned into the Baltic. You know, this was <laughs> the edge of the sea, but it mm. didn't look like it. It could have been a, a, a pond in any municipal park in the world. So the fact it's all built on water was quite interesting. The other thing that, that surprised me was actually not, not about the city itself, uh, but about Finland more generally, which is its history it only really starts in about 1300. Mm. Because before then, um, it's this, it's still this is a prehistoric era. Um, there's kind of no written texts or anything. There's there's a small population there, but there's no there's kind of no sort of sense of you know this is a country with its own history. And it's only really when the Swedes invade in about 1300 that it sort of becomes a place. And it's just one of those things that you sort of you don't really think about the idea that history starts at totally different times in different parts of the world. I found quite interesting. 
Mm. You know, I can't remember what I was reading um, about Finland, and and that occurred occurred to me that you know you kind of have a sense of a potted history if you're a, a bit of a geographic or historical nerd of most European countries, you know, and and Finland is a bit of a blank slate, and it's and and you've really outlined the reason in that it's kind of settled. Um, notional history um, it comes comes relatively late and also it was dominated by other countries for most of its history so mm. the Swedes arrive in about 1300 for 500 years it's part of the Swedish Empire um, then in one of the sort of big northern wars in sometime in the 18th or early 19th century I think um, Sweden and Russia go to war Sweden loses Russia's prize is to take Finland, so for the next century, it's it's essentially a, a Russian province. Grand Duchess, even. And it's only really with the Russian Revolution in 1917 that Finland breaks away and becomes becomes an independent state. So on one level, Finland is only 102 years old, you know. Where are you going next? So you, you've done Helsinki. Um, where else? If I have a conference, where would you like that conference to be, John? Oh, I don't know where I've not been. I'd like, I'd like to see more of, I'd like to see more of Italy. Um, I've always, I don't think I've ever been to a Spanish city and not fallen in love with it and started trying to work out how to move there. And it always passes. <laughs> but genuinely, the Spanish build cities incredibly well. They're all they've all got these sort of lovely pedestrianised centres with like you know these big squares with with people sat around drinking and, and eating tapas in them all night. Um, I must admit. I was somewhat surprised when I first went to to Madrid, just how actually urban it was, and that sounds like a really naff thing to say. But I, have you ever been to Lisbon? I've not. No. Lisbon is how I imagine Madrid to be. Lisbon is um, slightly more down at heel, more fading paint, um, crump, slightly crum, uh, crumbling architecture little bit more Victorian, whereas Madrid is just thrusting a modern. I, I, I was surprised with, with Madrid. I thought when I went to Lisbon, I went, oh, that's how I imagined Madrid to be. Anyway, I upended you, and I know you've got well, about well, another I mean, five Spain minutes. I mean, Spain is sort of one of the big economic success stories of, of Europe the last... I mean, like, you know, when we were, when we were kids... It was still a fascist regime until mm. some point in the 70s. When you were yeah. a kid, I wasn't around yet. Yeah, um, thank you. Because you're old. Just reminding everyone how old you are. Um, but, you know, it, it's only after that that it starts sort of developing into a, a sort of, you know, modern Western European country. But it's now it's now a pretty rich country. Mm. Um, and especially after Brexit, I think, it's probably going to be richer than us. So, And they get the weather and the food as well. It's really very unfair. Mm. Right, so I'm not going to do a conference in Italy. I'm not going to do one in Spain. Uh, third chance, and then we can say goodbye to you. We've done city metric, we've done transit maps, we've done Helsinki, love of Spain. You're not that much into trains yet. So give us uh, one other country or city, and then we can round up there, and then we can go on with the rest of our Map Corner show. Go. Um, you know, actually, I think the place that I'd most like to find an excuse to visit is is where you are right now. I've never been to the west coast of the U.S. I've Stop seen. It. Uh, no, I mean, I don't. I've, I'm not going to come see you. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I've 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 travelled around a lot of the U.S. 
because I've covered a couple of elections out there. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I've I've been in the kind of the sort of northeastern corner. Like I've made it as far west as like Chicago and as far south as, as North Carolina. And I've been to Florida and I've been to New Orleans. I've been to Texas. I've never been to the west at all. Um, and particularly like I'd like I don't think I'll like Los Angeles, but I should have feel I should see it. Mm-hmm. And I think I probably would like San Francisco, even if I couldn't afford to spend much time there. So I'd probably like to see that bit of the world, to be honest. No, it's funny that I landed up in San Francisco in large part because um, I'm an urbanist and San Francisco is always cited as the city which is the most European on the west coast and you know the 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 city center kind of like core absolutely well it's american but yes it's very walkable that's the thing that's when when they say it's european minutes it's very walkable unlike a lot of american cities unlike um la so i've actually been to san diego sacramento san jose um on the west coast seattle which is absolutely gorgeous and portland which is totally charming i've never been to los angeles for you know because it's just urban sprawl and I've never mm. um, had the desire to go. However, um, I will be going in a couple of weeks for the first time to a conference, funnily enough. I, I have actually heard, a, like friends who I wouldn't have expected to like it said they said they enjoyed it more than they thought. Mm. I, it just, it weirds me out. It's sort of a city with no centre, isn't it? It is just like a bunch of of these kind of, you know, small cities or big towns that run into each other. Um, mm. And you need a car to get anywhere, which which I'm not wild about. Um, but you're from Birmingham, so you're probably used to that. So maybe you'll yes. love it. <laughs> stop it, stop it. We are we are getting so much better in Brum with our our lack of a dependence on the car. And you know, to pull our whole kind of conversation back 360, we have uh, our new tram. So we do have now um, a metro system, and uh, which is um, expanding. And they are downgrading the roads in the city centre. It can't happen soon enough. But John Elledge, um, I, funnily enough, I have a conference in San Francisco, um, which I'm putting on early 2020. So you never know. You might get an invite. So then oh, uh, you, you, you can, uh, yeah, you can come out, break bread with me and um, give us um, an audio postcard of your first impressions of the Bay Area. But I know you've got to go, mate. But listen, thank you for coming on to Map Corner and just shooting the breeze. We didn't really have anything really to talk about other than um, just uh, stuff, really. But uh, yeah, thank it's never you. stopped us before, has it? It's good to talk to you. Look after yourself. Bye bye. Hi, this is Claire and I'm reporting in today from the garden of my uncle's house uh, on the edge of Perth in Western Australia. We're kind of near Darlington. To tell you about a place that we went to visit, which was the first place we went to see in Western Australia. First night we arrived, we were talking about things to do and the subject of the Mundaring Weir and the pipeline came up. I was just fascinated by the story behind this. And also quite interested that we'd never heard of it. And I know it's in Australia, and Australia's a long way away, and Perth is a long way away, even for most of the rest of Australia. But, um, you know, we had a fair amount of, you know, industrial heritage history growing up. Uh, You know, Victorian engineers, Brunel and people like that, you know, they've loomed large in terms of people I've heard of. And yet I'd never heard of C.Y. O'Connor, who did... Some fantastic projects, uh, including Fremantle Harbour here in Western Australia, a lot of projects in New Zealand, but most famously this impossible project, which was the Goldfields Pipeline. And this was a mechanism to bring water 
to the gold fields at Kalgoorlie and Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. Well, they had gold, but they couldn't do anything about it because there was no water. So he built a pipe, and the pipe goes over 300 miles, like 330 miles from the edge of Perth and the reservoir at Mundaring, all the way, all the way to uh, the gold fields. And as we drove up to Mundaring Weir, we could see the pipe, and the pipe sort of weaves sort of one side of the road, and the road, it's in the hills, so the road's sort of moving up and down and weaving around, and the pipeline sort of is one side and another. And it's a very simple look. It's just, it's a metal pipe. It's it was painted white, mostly the bits that we saw. And it's less than a metre wide. It just sits above the ground, maybe, I don't know, about a foot or so above the ground. And it just goes on and on and on. And you can sort of see it and you trace it along as you go by. And it seems such a simple thing but obviously moving water 300 miles is no mean feat and they are there I think there are nine pumping stations along the route we we went to see the pumping station number one which is just by the weir and um, is now a sort of museum to the whole project which is now run by the local water authority and it was such a beautiful place and a real beautiful of Victorian industrial architecture. I'll post some pictures. Um, and then the weir itself and the dam was so pretty. You could walk across the dam and look up across the uh, reservoir. There were loads of signs warning about kangaroos. Apparently there's a lot of kangaroos in the area. We didn't see any, much to my daughter's disappointment. Although it was the middle of the day, it wasn't really kangaroo time. They've really made an effort to emphasise, obviously in a very dry place, such the importance of water and how you know this is such an important project and it now continues over 100 years later to supply water to over 100,000 people who completely depend on it and I don't know maybe it was a cynic in me saw this pipe and I just thought god in theory it would be so easy to like disrupt that supply but it just goes about its business and delivers the water and no one seems to cause any trouble so um, yeah, I think it has had the occasional burst and so on. My uncle was telling me stories about what they did to deal with when the pipe got a hole in it and started shooting water up in the air, um, which must have been such a like, tricky thing to do because it's under quite a lot of pressure to get all that way. But yeah, it was, it was such a, just a really peaceful setting. And I have to say, the, kind of the Perth Hills generally, really nice place. Do you recommend it if you're ever in uh, Australia and you want to go to Western Australia? I recommend the Perth Hills. Just a really sad note on this, which is that C.Y. O'Connor, who's the um, chief engineer who uh, you know, oversaw the project, and you know it was commissioned uh, 1896 and it finished in 1903. So like that's that seems quite quick for a major infrastructure project. I don't know these days those things take you know decades, but. Um, it came under a lot of criticism because it seemed so impossible. And he actually killed himself before the pipeline was completed and not long before, actually. And he never saw it finished, which is such a terrible shame because he had some amazing achievements, including the harbour at Fremantle. So, yeah, well done, Seaway O'Connor. And uh, great to see that pipeline still delivering on its original aims.
know, I've never been, um, I've never been further east than Israel, though I'm hoping to put that right in the next month or so, and I have a trip planned to uh, Vietnam and to Hong Kong. But tell us about Perth. What's the, what's the first impression you get when you go there? Um, Perth was our first stop in Australia, and we have family mm. there. So we were there less as tourists, I guess, and, and more as a family visit. So mm. it was quite, I suppose, new worldy. I suppose I could say. Um, it was reminiscent of, like, Canada, I guess, in the, the kind of space and the layout. And um, it was – the weather was just right when we were there, which was perfect. Um, and we were staying up in the Perth Hills. Do you say uh, the weather was uncle. perfect? Ha, 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 ha. Very good. Very good. Nice. Um, so it was um, – yeah, I mean, we didn't see a huge amount of Perth, but we saw a little bit of, um, you know, some of the things that there were to see in the area. And we really enjoyed a trip to Penguin Island, which was a little island where penguins live, um, because mm-hmm. they have penguins in Australia. And uh, that was just beautiful, really, really lovely. And we saw... Uh, dolphins swimming in the bay and you know uh, the pelicans were amazing I've never imagined quite how big a pelican is until I saw them really close up um phenomenal phenomenal birds like you can really see the kind of connections to dinosaurs really when you you see them at that scale um Mm. so that was so that was interesting and it was going to downtown Perth was like yeah really it felt like a modern city, and then we went down this little bit, and, and people who've been there will know this. It's a little sort of quaint um, alleyway, sort of Elizabethan, sort of Shakespearean-themed alleyway with all these little shops. Mm-hmm. Um, real pastiche, oldie England stuff. Um, where it's a bit of a bit of a tourist trap, full of uh, you know tourism shops and so on. But um, it's just interesting how when you're creating a a, a cityscape you need that blend of you know big open spaces and you know, modern buildings and something that feels older and I guess in a in a new country like Australia um mm. how people feel about things that are older is you know it's a bit of a mixed bag and I think what I've really noticed from my time there was how the efforts being made belatedly so around honoring the original heritage of the people who were there first um and i think obviously there's still room to improve on that but uh it was really noticeable um how in aspects of sort of official life or signage or whatever um there was a, a clear kind of recognition of the the people whose land that was first round and uh I, I heard that over and over again from the friends and family that I visited in Australia who were clearly really interested and kind of patriotic about the Aboriginal heritage, even though they weren't from that background themselves. So that was really promising. Mm. Do you get a real sense when you're in Perth that it is, um, you know, the other end of the rest of Australia? Um. I don't know. I think as we were travelling and we weren't anywhere for very long and we were flying from one place to another, 
I guess it's it feels like part of the whole for me, but I imagine that's quite different. And there is a sense of that. People could have go there and there isn't much further to go from there. Although that said, uh, if you go up to the northern territories from Perth and into the Kimberleys and, and beyond, that really is the back of beyond, I think, in many ways. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it, it felt like a modern city, much like other places where I've been to, that a modern city feels like a modern city. But, you know, I wasn't there long enough to pick up on some of that nuance, I guess. Mm. When you talk about um, heading north in Western Australia on the way to the Northern Territories, I've always been fascinated by the Hood River Principality, which is this self-declared micronation. Do you know about it? No. Yeah, so I, this is the basic story as I understand it. And I first bumped into this um, in the 70s uh, watching Wicker's World. Do you remember Alan Wicker used to go around oh, the world? Yeah. and uh, white moustache, yeah, yeah. lovely hat. Yep. In in a way, we are the the uh, the bastard stepchild of Wicker's World, kind of doing Matt Corner. In a way, <laughs> uh, so so for people that don't know Alan Wicker, um, he was a British celebrity who used to go around the world and film himself in interviewing uh, interesting people in exotic climbs. And the one episode which really stuck out for me was he went to Hud River in Western Australia, which had declared independence from the state of Australia in the late 60s and declared itself a principality. And the the ruler was a guy called Prince Leonard. And basically, he didn't want to pay his taxes to the government of, I can't remember if it was Western Australia or to Australia, but either way, it was a tax dispute. So he declared independence started issuing his own money, stamps. So the, the principality is fundamentally just the family farm. But he does have his sons, or he did have his sons, and I, th- I think the population was, I don't know, I'm going to say 20 or 30. And because this is Western Australia, this is actually quite large in terms of acreage or square miles, I should say. Um, and the Australian government have basically just given them a bit of a pass. So he issues, um, or they issue, because I think, I believe he died a few years ago now, um, but they issue Well, he only passports. died earlier this year, by the looks of it. I'm just looking oh, him up. Look at, look at you and your Google skills. They issue passports, they've got their own money, and there are the odd country around the world that actually recognises the Hutt River Principality, and they basically survive off, off tourism. Um, it's one of these quirky micro-nations of which the government the country of which they sit has just gone, you know what, just do your own thing. We're not really going to push this. Um, but yes, so um, I've always I've always said to myself, if I ever go to Western Australia, I will go to the Hutt River Principality and, and get a stamp in, in, in my passport from there. But anyway, Claire, we have, um, we have calls, 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 and we should um, crack on with them. So from one bit of the Commonwealth to another, here is uh, Jane um, speaking about uh, Vancouver, I believe. Yeah. Hello, Map Corner. It's Jane Older calling in about the Metro theme. I would uh, like to uh, recommend the SkyTrain system in Vancouver because it is uh, very futuristic in a 50s sci-fi sense. It's driverless and electric, so it whirs. It's elevated monorail. Um, and it has a human announcer that sounds like a robot. Um, but it's also futuristic 
in the terms are still being expanded. So it has new routes in the map, uh, expands, unlike uh, the London underground map, which feels very static. The line from the airport to the city centre was opened for the 2010 Olympics, Winter Olympics, and it goes from elevated to underground like a slow-motion roller coaster. Um, and because there's no driver, you can sit at the front at the window and uh, ride it like a roller coaster. Oh, is, is that the end of our Jane? I think it is. Oh, thank you, Jane. You know what, Claire? Um, one of the themes of this show, we do need a sign-off, you know. We absolutely do. People, we need to know when people have, have, have spent and when they're basically um, there's no more of them to come. Yes. Didn't we agree about something to do with folding up a map? Well, this is a theme that I reckon, right, I'm just going to defer to you. You need to say what exactly the sign-off is and also what the greeting is because another caller has actually said, I don't know what the hell's going on here. How do I even start as a first-time caller into Map Corner? But anyway... Um, monorails, uh, the future of public transport, discuss. And I think, well, anyone who's been to uh, London and been on the um, driverless trains out in the uh, Docklands Light Railway uh, can sort of a bit identify with that, that feeling. Um, and again, a large sections of that are actually elevated and um you know, sort of looking out on the world and you can do it from the very front of the train, which feels, yeah, futuristic in a 50s sort of way, I guess. Um, mm. So that's that's always quite fun. Um, I think everyone's got their own form of favourite urban transport, perhaps. And I would say there's something very... Something, like, that feels very neat about any sort of transit system like uh, underground system whatever where you do have those schematic rather than real maps um and i think it's much easier to do those for any rail system as opposed to like a bus network or whatever although trams i suppose operate a slightly middle ground um certainly when i lived in holland um we had the most amazing tram system in amsterdam and it, it was the point where you didn't ever have to know when the tram was, you could just go out and there would be one along any minute. Mm. And, you know, that's when public transport really works. I think what's really interesting is to see some of these places now that are starting to make public transport free um, and, you know, really drive the change for people to get out of their cars and use public transport. Um, I know there are, I can't remember where they are, there's I think a couple of cities in France that have done it and, you know, obviously it costs money to completely subsidise your transport network, but then you get benefits elsewhere. And I think that's quite an interesting concept, which um, a political local government geek like John Elledge would know that is pretty much impossible everywhere, but a very hand, few handful of places in the UK because uh, the deregulation of bus services and um the lack of control that local city halls have over most of the public transport in the area that they oversee. But that's quite a niche public sector, local government piece of information there. Um, 
but it's one that John would appreciate, I'm sure. Monorails are the past uh, vision of the future, aren't they? There is something about a monorail. There's one at Gatwick Airport, isn't there, as well? Yeah, yeah. And, And there's also that Simpsons episode where... A huckster comes to town and says, you know, we're going to get Springfield into the future. We're going to build it a monorail. Uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, and he comes, you know, resplendent in a, in a straw hat. And he's, he's like some 1920s huckster. It is a great episode. I went to Seattle for the first time last year and I absolutely love Seattle. Seattle, beautiful, beautiful city, incredibly clean um, in stark contrast to San Francisco and the Bay Area. And they famously have a monorail which only has two stops and it was built um in the early 1960s so you know peak monorail time Mm. that sounds Um, like a real kind of olympic games white elephant type thing it's exactly exactly it oh really used tourists it was built for for um a world's fair right and it just goes from one place to another and people to get on it because seattle is famous for having its monorail um, it's it's famous for its kind of um that that needle building but also its monorail mm-hmm. and it is fundamentally just like a white elephant but has become a tourist attraction so um you know they they can have their uses even if they don't actually physically go anywhere where people need to go from home to work etc etc or for 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 recreation and it's not even a mile long you know, so, but it's been uh, it's been there for fifty odd years, and some seven thousand tourists travel on it each day. Wow. So Seattle and it's monorail. I remember being in Barcelona mm-hmm. with some um, some friends, uh, a, a friend of mine who was working at is it um, West Midlands Metro? Or anyway, she worked in in the sort of the metro system in the in the West Midlands, and her, she has spent her life trying to get people to take public transport. And we insisted on using every form of public transport in Barcelona in the two days that we were there as a group. And I particularly remember the funicular railway. Also, there was a thing, or was it a um, cable car or something like that? Anyway, um, but there was something a bit different that you couldn't normally get in a city. Um, so we were trying every different type of transport there was to be had. Mm-hmm. We in in Brum in the West Midlands, we've had the West Midlands Metro um, for some years now, but it did just travel on train lines, and it's only been in um, yeah two thousand and about sixteen that then they built it so it actually goes into the centre of Birmingham now. So it does go across, uh, it goes down Corporation Street, goes up, up Snow Hill. And it's funny how trams, and we need to get somebody on to talk about this in depth, have, have gone from being something you wanted to get off your streets in the 1940s and 50s because cars were seen as being the future mm-hmm. and being much more uh, flexible but now they are the thrusting sign of the future, aren't yeah. they? If you, you know, you, and I, you almost feel like Birmingham and the West Midlands have got a tram because they feel left behind. You know, you need a tram system to at least be on the map to be a modern Western city, almost. So, and and it's interesting because this tram is being built now. You know where it's going. So at the moment, it, it from Wolverhampton, it goes on the train line to snow hill in birmingham it goes it goes through the jewelry quarter it gets to snow hill then it goes on the road 
down Corporation Street, which is literally uh, devoid of traffic now. Um, and then it snakes round the the new, the new uh, New Street Station, and it's going up by the town hall and it's going along Broad Street and, it, and it's going to go back out. And there are plans, uh, if HS2 happens in Birmingham, for there to be a second line. And and it, and it has to be said, it is, uh, you know, you walk down the streets in Birmingham, you see this tram, you're like, oh, I'm somewhere now. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a feeling that um, this sleek modern thing whizzing, whizzing by um, feels all kind of thrusting and like you know the economy the economy of the city is burgeoning however one of the things i absolutely love about san francisco is so they have a, a real mishmash of public transport so they have the bay area rapid transport system the bart which is in effect what we'd call the tube the underground so it goes underground then they have the mooney which are electric let's call them trams but they're new. I want to say new, and they're built in like the last twenty years or so. And then they have um, electric buses, or at least uh, carbon neutral buses. Uh, if there is such a difference between the two, I, I don't know. And but what they have, what they do have on some of their tram lines are forgetting the trolley cars that everybody knows San Francisco is kind of famous for. That fundamentally go up two routes of a steep hill. And these trolley cars are fundamentally the same ones which have been in use since the early 1900s. They actually have vintage trams which have taken which the city have bought from other cities which were decommissioned. So you get these beautiful 1940s uh, trams from places like Philadelphia or uh, Pittsburgh running on San Francisco's uh, tram lines. And they specifically go on the Embarcadero up to Fisherman's Wharf. And they are a little bit of a tourist thing, but regular people do catch them. So there's this one which goes from the Castro, which is the the gay area, um, which is maybe two miles in from the downtown, goes down Market Street. And you want to jump on it because it just looks absolutely great. And again, it's that the past version of the future you know it's a sleek 1940s version of something which is aerodynamic and and very sleek yeah. and of course and, and but they're incredibly beautiful and all of them are different colors and when you get in them it very clearly says so this tram is from philadelphia it was built in 1948 and there's even one which is built in either milan or turin i can't remember from about the ni- 1908 and, and it's just wonderful. And and I love the idea of cities um, almost creating heritage in that way. You know, if, you know, if you're an eight-year-old boy or girl, you want to jump on that tram because they, they just look incredibly beautiful yeah. and wonderful. Like you're going to have an adventure. But also they have a purpose. And then also they're cementing um, a very uh, distinctive image of that town for tourists as well, you know. So, and uh, it's the one thing about the Bir- Birmingham's uh, trams. They are featurelessly slick. And I did say to a friend of mine um, some time ago, it would have been a stroke of genius, Birmingham City Council or the West Midlands Metro Authority had uh, put some vintage trams on them. Because it, no surer way is the 
than that than to get a whole load of tourism in into the town and to get little kids jumping on them and screaming at the mum and dads to, to get them on that old thing, you know, and, and to ding the bell. Oh, I like a modern freak tram myself. I think there's something very beautiful about the new ones. And um, like the Nottingham tram, for example. And actually the Manchester ones as well. I quite like those. Mm. When I lived in Manchester in the early 80s, it's when, uh, sorry, the early 90s is when they were, they'd just finished the first line of the Manchester Metro. And but they are still expanding that. Right, quite possibly. Anyway, yeah. we're, we're wittering. Um, how's about we uh, go on to Glyn? Because I believe he schooled you. Oh, yeah, like Glyn's, we're moving from uh, public transport back to roads. But, um, yeah, Glyn is here to explain the thing I was trying to tell everyone last time round that I had remembered badly from something someone told me 10 mm. years ago or 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, and he's here to tell it much, much clearer than I did about road numbering in the UK. Hello, Matt Corner. It's Glenn here. Uh, hello, Royfield. Hello, Claire. And I will be known to some of your listeners through Dumpty Dum. Uh, I'm currently calling in, in from... 51 degrees and 27.1 minutes north, uh, naught degrees and 12.7 minutes west. Uh, Royfield asked me to call in on the road numbering that was discussed in the last uh, last podcast um, uh, uh, in relation to the UK. And um, it's based on the A road network. So the A1 runs north from London to Edinburgh, the A2 down to Dover, the A3 to Portsmouth, the A4 to Bristol, the A5 to Hollyhead, the A6 to Carlisle, and then the A7, A8, and A9 used to run um, also from Edinburgh. And then between the A1 and the A2, all uh, roads with numbers begin with a 1, between the A2 and the A3 with a 2, and so on. I get a little bit confused in Scotland because of where between the A7 and the A1, where they all begin with a six. But that's the basic principle. And most of those A roads still exist, although um, some. The, I think the A8 has been more or less absorbed into the M8 in Scotland. And you will find it difficult to find the A5 and the A6 in the southeast because it's often been absorbed into a motorway or renumbered something else. There are some interesting A roads, um, such as the A38 and the A34, which both start in the south of England and then go to various points in the Midlands or the north. Um, the A38 um, sort of finishes in Mansfield. I'd love to know what the civil servant who was doing the numbering decided uh, decided why a road should end in Mansfield. So the numbering of motorways, uh, that obviously followed all the numbering of the A roads and other roads. And um, it, the motorways generally taken their number from the nearest A road that goes in roughly the same direction. So as the M1 goes uh, north, it took, follows the, roughly the same track as the A1. The M4 west, same as the A4. The M3 goes southwest, roughly the same as the A3. M5, definitely an anomaly, doesn't seem to go anywhere near the A5. M25. Uh, along its southern um, uh, southern course, it runs very close to the A25. I suspect where, that's where the numbering came from there. Um, 
Yes, I think that's about uh, that's all about. I have to, all I, I have to say on road numbering, which is probably a, a great relief for your listeners. Uh, really enjoying the Matt Corner podcast. Thanks to all involved in its production, and hope it continues for a very long time. Goodbye. Can I, can I can I just say right? So Glenn said at the very start that I told him to call right, and that sounded like the answer that you gave in the previous episode wasn't good enough. So I went, Glenn, just to sort this out. <laughs> it's because he did a rather good post on our Facebook page that I says, dude, why don't you just like call up and say all of that? So just want to clear that up, whatever, first off. Um, I think you assume hmm. I take offence more than I actually do. Well, I, I, just, just making sure, just making sure. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So where are we actually um, with the signing on and signing off? Why, why, why don't you just like lay the rule now, right? I know somebody's going to mention it in a call. Well, you know what? Let's just, I'm going to hold my horses Wait till she mentions it in a call, and then Claire, you can definitively tell us who's folding a map, who's going ahoy, or whatever. Right here is Kath, and I believe she's from the Czech Republic. Hi, this is Kathy calling in from the Czech Republic. I posted a map this month of the uh, called the Carbon Map, which I think is a great example of how maps can be used to show information. Uh, it's also quite cool because it uh, doesn't just colour in areas, but it shows them as different sizes. So, like, the areas, it, depending on what you choose, you can set it to sh- show different things, but it can show uh, who, which parts of the world are emitting the most carbon or consuming the most carbon, uh, and it can also be coloured in different ways, so you can have more than one variable at the same time. Um, I wonder, do you have a... Uh, map that shows information that's a favourite of yours 
that show that can be used maybe for campaigning or just making people aware of things. Um, also, on a completely different note, I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm at the moment, and that reminded me that one of my favourite maps to look at at this time of year during the summer is lightningmaps.org, where they give you a real-time um, picture of where lightning is striking any time in the world. And it means that uh, if it's really hot and you feel like a storm must be coming, you can look and see the storm approaching you. Uh, or you can just look at any part of the world and see where they've got storms at the moment. Enjoy. Bye. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you go first? Actually? Okay, so, um, yeah, I definitely recommend people look at the carbon map because it's a really interesting way of showing where all of the carbon's being created, uh, who are most vulnerable. Often, you won't be surprised to hear the people who are not creating all the carbon. And uh, and I'm just looking at a, um, a map now about, you know, the change in CO2 emissions and to see how some places are coming down, um, but obviously not by as much as the people that are going up. And, of course, a lot of the developing world is increasing its carbon emissions. Um, but, you know, they started from a very low base. So, you know, that's to be expected, I guess. Um, but I also do want to make a kind of call out for Kathy's suggestion around the lightning strike map because I've spent the last two or three mm-hmm. nights of this week in a sweltering UK where we've had storms and rumblings and uh, I think it was Tuesday night we had lightning for hours. Um, it was just really, really stormy. And looking at the lightning map is so interesting and you can track it in real time or you can track it sort of like back an hour or back 24 hours, and you can see what was happening kind of the previous day, or you can watch what's happening like in the moment and see where the lightning is and if it's getting closer to you. So I very much enjoyed looking at that map this week. Um, it's, a, it's a really, yeah, I don't know who gets the data for it. I'm not quite sure how you know where lightning is striking at any point to put it on immediately in a real-time map. I mean, there's something about the technology that allows that to happen, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, I'm guessing it comes mm. from some kind of meteorological society or something. I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but um, it, it's just fascinating. And because it's happening in real time, you can just sit and watch it. It's a bit like the conversation we had last time about watching the map as you sit on a plane and see how see how far you've come you can mm. you can just sit and watch the, the uh, lightning map and uh, see what's going on storms wise in the area that you live in or somewhere else if it's more interesting mm. a- absolutely absolutely um, i'm trying to think of maps which uh, kind of like blow my skirt up which uh, display level levels of data and and, and kind of Kind of world um, classifications of and the spread of languages are one which I always kind of find fascinating. Um, so, like the language tree, uh, you start from Indo-European, um, is always like a fascinating one. But that is like a tree. But then you can see that spread 
throughout the world, you know, which bits of the world uh, where people um, speak English as a first language or the, the, all the Slavonic languages or the, uh, the the language groups of India. I always find it incredibly fascinating because um, it's incredibly diverse. Um, so I just came back from a holiday in um, in, in Croatia and I went to Sarajevo. And that language map is a very contentious one around there because um, for nationalistic reasons, uh, the people of Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro and Bosnia say they speak different languages. They're all mutually intelligible. Anybody from any one of those four countries, that all used to be part of Yugoslavia, can sit in a room and have a proper Barney and understand every word that they're saying. But you speak to a Croatian and do not dare say they, that they speak Serbo-Croat. They will tell you absolutely categorically, no, I speak Croatian. And, and interestingly, in somewhere like Bosnia, um, language is now used as a way of rediscovering nationality and identity because the Bosnians... Um, historically worthy, yeah, okay, we're nominally Muslim, but we're kind of not, we just accept anybody. Uh, people of the former Yugoslavia, and of course Bosnia is wedged between Croatia and Serbia. And because of the war and because of independence, um, new loan words from Turkish are coming into Bosnian, in inverted commas. But you see that language map, and you kind of slightly have to roll your eyes and say, well, OK, um, you know, this is this bit of Bosnia and they speak Serbian, this bit of Bosnia, they speak Bosniak. But it is somewhat of a political fiction. So I kind of find those maps really interesting because they don't just tell you about the the truth and the lay, the lay of the land, so to speak. But also there are political community uh, kind of restraints, constraints, uh, you know, kind of put there as well and stuff. So as I was explaining to somebody um, and they were saying, no, I speak a very different language to somebody who speaks Serbian. I said, but can you understand every word they say? They went, yeah, but it's a different language. Went, well, it's not a different language. It's a dialect then, isn't it? We're talking about an accent change. And, you know, it's, it's the same as, you and I, uh, Claire, speaking to somebody from the Highlands of Scotland, you know, you might have to slightly tune your ear in, but you can then understand it. And we wouldn't say that somebody from the Highlands of Scotland is speaking a different language. It just goes to show how easily differences can be escalated into conflict, perhaps, you know. Absolutely. And yeah, and it goes goes to the, the central point I was making because of that war in the early 19. 19- 90s um these constituent countries now say that for nationalistic reasons that they have their own indigenous language so you look at the language map down there and you go yeah but mm. it's not really that easy. Yeah. well it puts me in mind of all the kind of dialect maps you see of of britain where you know different ways that people pronounce scone or scone or what different words people have for the name of a bread roll uh, or a ladybird and think just imagine if we all fell into interstellar warfare on the basis of how we describe our bread rolls that would be quite terrifying that's the future folks <laughs> it absolutely what? would 
<laughs> well, the, the way politics is going in the Western world, it is, it's absolutely is the future and the future is happening right now. Um, that was Kathy in the Czech Republic, probably our first listener in the Czech Republic. Now here's Pat in Chicago. Hello, Royfield, Claire, and uh, all other Map Corner pals. This is Pat in Cleveland. Ooh, I've forgotten what I information we're supposed to provide on our first call, so I'll just have to be told off and provide it next time. I recently saw a map of the U.S. posted on Facebook showing the most commonly spoken language in every U.S. state, excluding English and Spanish. Uh, I might have predicted a few of them, indigenous languages in Arizona, New Mexico, South Dakota, and Alaska, for instance. And it doesn't, it's not surprising that Asian languages are common on the West Coast, Chinese in Washington, Vietnamese in Oregon, and Tagalog in California and Nevada. And on the East Coast, there's French in northern New England, Portuguese in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And those are very old communities there. But I wouldn't have predicted Nepali in Nebraska, Somali in Minnesota, and Hmong in Wisconsin. I'm sure it's because of the U.S. government refugee resettlement program. The, governor, the government refers refugees to local agencies, and then the agencies tend to specialize. So Somali refugees were originally resettled in Minnesota. Then the resources, such as interpreters, were available. A community formed, and other Somali immigrants followed, uh, even to the cold winters of Minnesota. In fact, there's a new Minnesota member of Congress who was born in Somalia, Representative Ilhan Omar. Last year, the greatest number of refugees to the U.S. came from Congo. Our daughter is a midwife who uh, works for a federally funded health clinic here in Cleveland, and she sees many Congolese, Afghan, and Nepali Bhutanese patients. The map was originally posted by Simon Shows You Maps, uh, and um, he got it from Business Insider. So um, I posted all, also on the Map Corner Facebook group, so you can find it there. Cheers, all. Oh, thank you for that. And sorry for sending you from Chicago. And it, was from, it was actually from Cleveland in the great state of Ohio. Um, Ilha and Omar, she's been in the news recently, hasn't she? She has. I had no idea um that there were there was such a concentration of somalis in minnesota you know it seems like the absolute antithesis in every which way but you know topography wise weather wise mm-hmm. for, for, from somalia um but it shows you how on at least on some levels how integrated some bits of that somali community have actually been uh, and how successful they've been that within what a generation they've got their first congressperson you know not only yeah and i can see how it makes sense in in america if you're going to have a asylum seeker dispersal arrangement but in such a large country you do allow people to stay close to other community mm. members to an extent by you know having concentrations and um we have done similar things in the uk but not not to connect particular communities together, particularly more that there were very limited places that were dispersal areas. Um, so you would get concentrations sort of depending on where people were fleeing from at any one point and what the dispersal area was at the time they arrived. Mm. There's also there's, one thing which this map does do is it shows you, in effect, different waves of 
immigration. Because the other thing which really um, sticks out for me is that in places like Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, etc., German is is the language. And also in the Midwest, so in Indiana, Ohio, and in Kentucky. And, and obviously that is emigration going way back from the middle of the 19th century, that those mm-hmm. communities still have some, you know, some toehold on um, the, the, still have a toehold in terms of language um, within, within those states. So I was really struck um, when I first saw Fargo, which is a film by the Coen brothers in about 1996, um, the slightly peculiar way that the residents of Fargo speak and Fargo, I forget where, whether it's um, like North Dakota or somewhere, but it's somewhere close to Canada anyway. And they have this Scandinavian, Scandinavian inflection. And it's because um, many immigrants three generations ago from Scandinavia, from Sweden and Norway actually went there. And we can kind of think that America is, is very mono cultural in terms of just the way that English is spoken but it does have in various different bits of it inflections from from other languages uh, which famously um, down in Louisiana there still are some people that speak French and then more in the more rural bits of Louisiana there is a like a French inflected kind of English but as I said, the, the, what this map does show you is the different waves of immigration in the history of the United States. and But then also um, immigration in, in and of itself. You can have your settler displacement programs, but then also you have kind of chain migration as well, don't you? So that's why you have this uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tagalog, um, which is going to be the Filipino language over in California you know those communities aren't part of any resettlement program but one person comes from the Philippines quite likes it and gets uh, their partner or a brother or a sister and then before you know it um, another friend hears about it and then you get chain migration so there's two different bits of migration actually happening here on this map and then with waves of migration whether it is historic so German settlers in the Midwest in the early 1800s to mid hundreds, uh, 1800s, or much more recent. So you get Somalis in Minnesota, and it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and there would have been German speakers who fled the Nazi regime in the early part of the 20th century as well, of course. Mm, absolutely. So thank you for that uh, awesome map, Pat, from Cleveland, and I should really remember it's Cleveland because I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. Uh, now it's Catherine Rowan Jones. Now, is it time for me yes. to decide what people are going to say? Right, yes, over to you, boss. Okay, well, uh, just prepare yourself because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that last time we agreed that you were going to put onto the web page well, I forgot. the list of I all forgot. the local I, national games. I for- oh, gosh, yes, it's me. So that's what we agreed to do, and that's what I thought we were still agreeing to do, and people could start doing it if only you would post the thing onto the web page. All right. So that's so consider this your reminder. So what about the sign off though, Claire? Before it's all my fault. Okay, sign off <laughs> I think for sign off, uh, we could just keep it simple enough, people just, just say goodbye. 
Uh, that doesn't sound very exciting, perhaps, but like I, I would never remember to say I'm folding up my map. I quite like the idea of that, but uh, if people have time for it, that's great. Uh, but really, anything that indicates that the call is over works for me. No, come on. I'm quite a practical why, why, girl. why don't we just say I'm folding up my map? That's beautiful. Well, there you go. Folding up our map. That's how, that's how we're going to finish our calls. Right. Then what happens if people don't do that? Do we line them up against the wall or what? Does, what, what happens? What is the sanction? You just... There needs to be a sanction. You're like a little dictator in need of a country. What's all this about? <laughs> well, no, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to foster community. In very much, in, in a very... What, sim- by trying to line people up against the wall? What is this fascism? <laughs> you know, what? I've just come back from Croatia and there's statues of Franja Tudjman everywhere there. You know, yeah, our Croatian friends won't like me for saying this, but he was a bit of a watered-down fascist, but that's what he was, folks. But anyway... No politics on that corner. All right, so... I'd like to say that we're a welcoming space and you can do... You, as long as you call in, we appreciate you and you are not going to get lined up against a wall by Royfield. I will personally stand in the way. But I didn't say I was gonna, what I was going to do with them when they're lined up against the wall, Claire. Maybe I was going to give them all a stiff handshake or maybe a cuddle. You don't know. Oh, right, fair enough. Your mind went to genocidal tendencies and i think that says more about you than me actually but anyway um nice attempt to dig yourself out of that one (laughs) Catherine rowan jones over to you good evening matt corner it's Catherine rowan jones calling in from high wickham don't have me grid reference but i know where i live so that's all right thanks for name checking (laughs) that beautiful map of the mississippi a work of art indeed and the shifting of rivers got me thinking about another transience which is the phenomenon of longshore drift um, notably on the south coast of England in East Sussex uh, at Rye uh, where the former large natural harbour the Chambre, old French for room, safe haven uh, experienced a violent storm in the 13th century which changed the debouching of the rivers Rother, Rye and one other whose name evades me and which then silted up. So Henry VIII's fine sea fort at Camber Castle uh, never fired a shot in anger. Ships were too far out at sea for ever to be a realistic threat. Uh, further along the coast to the west at Pevensey, the Romans built a fine castle on what was then a peninsula in another natural harbour, uh, such a structure that William the Bastard and his conquering force used it as a bridgehead for the invasion. This um, was an important source of trade in the region when sea trade was safer than um, land routes and far swifter too. But again, longshore drift, uh, which is the oblique action of wind um, on a coastline, I believe, geologists would correct me, uh, caused that to silt up too. And Pevensey Castle is now two miles from the sea. Thus passes the glory of the world, along with silt, pebbles and longshore drift, as passes my time and comes quickly to a close. Thanks for everything you do. And remember, a globe has no corners. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Wow. 
Uh, I quite like the Globe Has No Corners as a sign-off, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm coming around to the idea of that. You know what? I was thinking the same thing. All right. Why don't we just let the two battle it out? Because I quite like that, too. So you can either <laughs> say, I'm folding up my map or the Globe Has No Corners. And then we'll see in the fullness of time which one wins out. How's that? Fair enough. Smashing. Okay. I, I, when she was talking, when initially she said Longshore Drift, I had no idea. And then as soon as she started talking, I did go to Pevensey because I have been there. I took the kids there, what, 10, nine years ago or so. When Nonella came over from Canada uh, to see the old Roman, uh, I don't know if there's anything there per se, but it was it, 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 this was you know, a Roman fort. It's not like it's still stood or anything like that. But, of course, it's nowhere near the, um, uh, near, near the sea anymore. Um so what's the difference between longshore drift and just coastal erosion? Is, is it the same thing? Well, it feels like the opposite because longshore drift seems to make things further from the sea, whereas erosion Brings makes things closer. fall into it. But, it. but it's kind of the same process, though, isn't it? That's kind of what I meant, I, I think, really. Oh, I just being dim. Is it because I'm too fixated on human geography and cities and stuff? That whilst the nuance of all this has kind of gone over my head a little. Well, I mean, I think it's calls from intelligent people like Catherine that really uh, bring to light the hopeless and hapless amateurism <laughs> of the two of us <laughs> when it comes to anything technical about geography. <laughs> We're just enthusiastic animals, folks. Do not look to us for any of the scientific facts. We just like looking at maps. Mm-hmm. True. True that. Which actually does uh, go to highlight the fact that maybe we should get some proper some proper geeks on, on this. Uh, on this oh, yes. So. And that's a great opportunity to mm. say that we were talking about having a new feature on the show, which is going to be Map Fact of the Month. Oh, okay. Um, and I was going to do one which I haven't done properly for this time round, but I will. But ideally, what we need is people who are really good at that kind of thing to call in with their map factor of the month. Mm. Um, so I think there's a rich theme of interesting geographical facts, which could be little nuggets in the show. So here's a call out for those. Uh, tell us your map facts as well as your map fandom you know if we're just like trying to start random new bits of the show right can we have um map of the month not map of the month sorry can we have a flag of the month <laughs> because nothing works better in an audio medium than just talking about maps and then talking about flags why not why not if we're going to go for it let's just embrace if it. it's because you're Loving over the Tibetan flag again. Uh, Is this a spillover from another well, podcast? Well, no, and it's the Nepalese flag, but I don't pull, I'm not going to pull you up about oh, that. Oh, right, yeah, right. yeah. But no, I... Except you just did. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, travelling to Bosnia really opened my eyes as to, I would say, to the very, I'll call it an unholy mess. That's somewhat... Um, over-egging the pudding slightly. The the Bosnian flag does not look like a traditional flag. And um, 
in terms of exology, um, people always say that the flag of Cyprus is unique because it's the only flag in the world which has a map of the country on. So on the flag of Cyprus, it's white and you see Cyprus and there's some, yeah, yeah, some yeah. olive leaves. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. What they've very cleverly done on the Bosnian flag is have the shape of Bosnia on it as a triangle. But at the orientation of where Bosnia sits on a map. So it's blue. um, The triangle is yellow. And then it has a range of stars. So it looks almost like a knockoff of the European Union flag in that regard, because the stars are yellow with this blue background. Put together, it looks like a 13 year old has got out a ruler and some and some star stickers and gone, right, I'm going to make myself a flag here. And how the heck it actually passed the Bosnian parliament, heaven only knows. But it, it fundamentally doesn't work as a national symbol. It feels like it was created in the 1980s. You know, a flag should have a timeless quality to it. And a flag should yeah. always feel slightly old-fashioned, but it has a timeless quality to it. You don't want it to be all newfangled. And this feels like it was newfangled 30 years ago. It, I, you, I quite like it, but it looks like it was a logo for Blockbuster Video. There you go. It's the same colours. And, and you, you put your finger on it. And, and I said it looks like it's been designed by a 13-year-old who's got out some some star stickers and, uh, and, a, and a ruler or two. But the very fact that you can equate it to a logo tells you that actually it's not timeless. You know, it, it, it feels like design as opposed to something which is organically come from history. And that's the thing about flags. Even when they're not organically from, from history, they should feel like it. And this doesn't at all. And the, the other interesting thing, so I was looking at it whilst I was in Sarajevo and you go, hmm, you know, this doesn't work at all. But interestingly, they don't have it. Um, And a lot of the flagpoles, it's actually ranged downwards. So it's ranged vertically as opposed to horizontally as well, which I think might be a little bit of a Western Balkan thing. Because when I noticed that, then when I went back to Croatia, I noticed that they, that the Croatian flag quite often on a flag post is actually ranged um, vertically, not horizontally as well. But a lot of it in Bosnia was that way. But I just, just looking at it, I just thought, nah, this this just does not really work. And it, you know, somebody needs to take the, you know, the vexillology uh, department of the Bosnian state in hand and say, we mush, we need to sort this out because it's it doesn't project Bosnia and it doesn't project a country with traditions, which is when you go to Sarajevo, you absolutely believe this is somewhere rooted in the tradition of East meets West, the Ottomans and the Austrians and all of that kind of stuff. Looking at that flag, you don't don't get that sense at all. So if you're having, if you're just like randomly, arbitrarily, unilaterally having new sections, um, I uh, say to you, listener, is another reason for you to call in and just say, oi, I quite like this flag, and say, where the flag, what is the flag of? It doesn't have to be a country. And then why you like it and what it what it symbolises to you. Fair enough. Great. Now, um, that's the calls done. Why don't we do the socials? Okay. So, 
Um, on Facebook, we've had we've now up to 191 members on Facebook, so we're nearly hitting 200. Smashing. So you know, tell your friends, get that mm-hmm. number up. Um, and um, we've had a variety of things go on there, um, and in conjunction with the moon landings celebration mm. uh, in the last week, uh, we've had a few people post maps of the moon, uh, uh, including Paul Hahn, um, who you know posted about sort of different ways of mapping the moon over the years. Some really interesting stuff around what you know what people thought the moon was like and how our understanding of it has changed over you know a number of centuries to be honest um to the point where we then we sent people up to walk around on on it um so that was that was nice um Liz Villalobos just, sent a really just, sorry you carry just, on just, just before we, we go into um Liz and and her uh contribution I'm all over the space program and have been at least I was when I was a little kid but I must admit I was massively underwhelmed by the film The First Men with Ryan Gosling playing Neil Armstrong that was dreary and I was so upset because anything to do with NASA the 60s space space exploration the Gemini program the Mercury program the Apollo program Buzz Aldrin all that kind of stuff was like porn to an eight-year-old me and I still, you know, I'm wide-eyed about what people could achieve, you know, what we could achieve um, as, a, as, as a species, considering that the power of those computers was less than a modern calculator. And, and they mm-hmm. got there and got back safely. Um, so if anybody can call in and recommend a good film um, about the space race and about the landing on the moon not the space race but the landing on the moon please call in and tell me because the first moment ryan gosling really let me down very ponderous very slow have you seen the dish which is not really about the people on the moon but i quite enjoyed that one no who's in that it's about this satellite dish in australia which was essential to beam back the tv pictures of them landing on the moon Ah. It's quite a sort of gentle comedy, really, but um, it's yeah, it's one to look out for. I, I quite enjoyed it, and um, it's you know just one of those sort of heartwarming stories about people who went the extra mile, and without whom, no one would have seen them walking on the moon. Oh, Rotten Tomatoes giving it ninety six percent. It's a uh, it, it's good. There you go. Roger Ebert loved it too. Good heavens. I'm going to give that a watch. Well done, Claire. Uh, so you don't have to call in, folks. No, but please do. <laughs> please do. Call in and, 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 and please tell me. All right. Um, Viz, uh, Liz Villalobos. Okay, so Liz posted a, uh, a picture that had been compiled by somebody comparing where people who lived locally and people who were tourists took photos Uh and again, I'm not, I didn't look too closely at understanding where this data had come from because I find it a little bit creepy and big brothery. Um, but it, I think it was San Francisco, wasn't it? So it yes. showed different areas of the city. Where do tourists take photos and when do, where do other people take photos? Uh, and there are areas where they overlap, but it was quite interesting to see how kind of the, the bits of the city that were photographed by tourists were not the same at all as the 
places mm. that were photographed by locals. Um, and obviously, you've got more experience of uh, life on the ground there. I don't know whether you've got any sense of whether that it made yeah, that base it, it out. made complete sense that map. And so it's one of the first things that whenever people come to see me, they'll say, I want to see the Golden Gate Bridge. And you go, mm, okay, but that's out of the way, right? And and actually the bridge which connects San Francisco to Oakland, and I spend a lot of my time in Oakland, is the Bay Bridge. And actually I think it's a more beautiful bridge, um, but it's newer. It doesn't have the iconic status as, as far as the rest of the world is concerned. So you always have to go out of your way to go and see the Golden Gate Bridge. Then you look at that kind of heat map where tourists are taking pictures. It's the Golden Gate Bridge. It's Fisherman's Wharf. It's um, the Embarcadero. Um, it's kind of Golden Gate Park. It, these are not the bits of the city that you as a local frequent. They're just not. So, so the map completely utterly plays out. And the interesting thing is as well, is where they did kind of overlap, a lot of it was actually in the on the ferries. Well, it was in in the bay, which is actually the ferries. So to catch yeah. a ferry from Fisherman's Wharf, you can go over to Marin, Tiburon, Sassolito, etc. And that's just a lovely thing to do as a tourist because you see um, Alcatraz Island, you see the whole of the bay, and it's just plumbing beautiful. But people do use that as a commute uh, to and from work. So that's the reason why you had uh, this mingling in the, in the middle of the bay. But yes, first glance, it completely played out in terms of where people in the Bay Area would actually go and take a picture. You know, you, invariably, you're going to be wandering down um, Market Street or in the downtown. You're going to go to a bar or something. You'd be there with your friends having a drink and you, and you take a selfie. You know, that's where the locals are going to be taking pictures or there's going to be some pothole that you've seen and you're outraged and you take a picture and you send it into the council, to the city council. Whereas tourists, you know, it's it's all about uh, the seals over in Fisherman's Wharf, and et cetera. So first look to me, authentic. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out for other cities because there must be places where more people regularly sort of just live work and do normal stuff like take photos in and amongst tourists but I I guess the pattern will look different from each place Mm. absolutely sorry I I just stood up um because me me uh me watch says i need to stand up once an hour so i'm just standing up so why don't you just like crack on with this and then when my watch wants me to sit down i will Okie dokie. So um, a couple more from Facebook and and one on the subject of um, the sort of transit maps. Uh, Mark Everton, who's our friend Yoko Bear, uh, posted a London tube map showing the location of the cheapest pint in a named pub close to each each underground station. Uh, if you're ever in the need of a cheap pub crawl around London, buy Tube. Um, so, again, that's an example. Of, I mean, we, we spoke to um, you know, the, the Londonist mapper uh, last time round, and I, I think there are loads of fantastic um, Tube maps showing all sorts of different things, and I, but I'd not seen that one before, so that was, that was quite fun. 
Um, and also in London specifically, Sebastian Sos, I'm going to say Salcedo, um, pub, uh, shared a map around um, all the bomb that dropped on London during the Second World War sort of mm. locates all those locations where bombs dropped. Uh, so if, particularly if you live in the city now, you can have a feel for what was there before and what may have been destroyed by a bomb where you are you know, currently living. Um, so it's always interesting to see how history uh, you know, can be sort of placed back on a map um, and understanding where we, you know, where we understand a place from. So, mm. uh, so they're my Facebook pics. Matt from the Londonist did kind of talk about that as well, that you can still wander around London uh, and, and see it's not as if there are bombed out buildings by any stretch of the imagination, but um, the ramifications of the German bombing in the Second World War is still writ large if you know how to look for it, uh, which yeah. th- does bring me back on to Sarajevo. And it's like the, the saddest thing that I noticed a couple of weeks ago is the um, that city is so not recovered fr- from that war. And I am doing an audio postcard, um, which um, about my bus journey from Dubrovnik to Sarajevo. And uh, because it is, it's only what, four hours, um, but it is kind of epic in, in many ways, or at least it's symbolic of uh, the change that, that um, the geopolitical change that that bus journey actually encompasses. But when you get to Sarajevo, there are still buildings, not that many, but there are enough uh, buildings which were damaged in the war, which have not been rebuilt. And we're on about the war that ended in, what, 1995, 1996. But what is absolutely evident is uh, the amount of buildings with um, bullet holes in them. They are all over the place. And you really realise, you know, the terror that... um, citizens of Sarajevo um, mm-hmm. suffered under because the the Serbs in the hills were just firing down on them. And for the first 18 months, the uh, the Bosnians had no army worth talking about, let alone any kind of uh, artillery uh, just to fire back. And you'll be walking down a, a regular street. We're not talking about in the downtown next to the government buildings, but you just uh, ordinary road and there are like it's just peppered with all these holes, and you go, they're coming bullet holes from like twenty five years ago. Yep, you know, and some buildings that they've actually patched them up and, and filled them in, you know, with, with concrete and stuff. But those are in the minority, and you just think crumbs. You know, the the uh, economy of Sarajevo, let alone the spirit, was so fundamentally changed by that war, and it's still, is still. Yeah, Nick, trying to recover really. So, yeah, the the the, mm-hmm. the the marks of war. So, yeah. So that was Facebook. What else you got? That was Facebook. So, um, uh, on the map corner hashtag on Twitter. Uh, again, it's mainly me that's posting to that. So, uh, come come join in. Uh, but a couple of things uh, that I would like to kind of flag up that. Um, I've been sat there, I've been, again, on the kind of subway map theme, 
there's an amazing um visual of a human being anatomy as a subway map uh uh, what's we seem to be believing is just um showing all the different sort of systems in the human body and uh how they all connect and so that that's really quite a beautiful thing but taking the subway map theme um and then i want to do a quick shout out for uh, a map that i posted um about the uh, justice 39 um which is uh, an artwork which uh, or a piece of drama which is being put together around um the 1919 peace riots uh, in Luton, which is this time last week, I was um, in Luton Town Centre watching this amazing, um, well, yeah, spectacular, art spectacular, uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of when the people of Luton uh, took against the local uh, council and burned down the town hall. And I think it's been quite an interesting piece of artwork to celebrate or commemorate that um and it's been quite brave on the part of the council to commemorate that as well i was very glad to see they didn't burn down the new town hall again because uh-huh. that's where i work uh, <laughs> so <laughs> but um there's a really great map that um there's a, there's an, another drama piece coming up next month um called justice 39 which is focused about you know what people would change it's where it's working specifically with young people in the town but you can see the location where every one of the 39 people who were charged in uh, by uh, the magistrate's court for um, offences relating to the riots on the 19th of July, um, where they lived and who they were and, and some of the background to their stories. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how, you know, a lot, one of the things that really sparked the riot was that people had come back from the war um obviously you know it's very soon after the end of the first world war uh not long after the official armistice was signed and the U- the british decided to have call this peace day on the 19th of july and there were going to be celebrations around the country um in luton the uh the, the powers that be organized a sort of a grand uh, banquet uh, but you had to buy a ticket and most of the people who had fought in the war couldn't afford one because there wasn't very much work and the, the people didn't have any money and they didn't like being left out. So they stormed the town hall and burned it down. Um, and so it's been really interesting to take a look at this map and um, look at some of the personal stories of the people who got involved. And it's a real mixture of um, people who've been in the war, uh, daughters and wives and um, you know, old, young, old and young, just a real range of people. And, you know, there were thousands of people on the street that day uh, when the town hall was burned down, but only 39 were ever charged or taken to court. Um, and I'm sure there's a whole other story around how it was that those other people who felt the hand of justice on their collar, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. in relation to the to the world. and you know there were some some people were acquitted some people were sentenced to you know long sentences of hard labor it's a real mixture um so that was my uh, bit of historical mapping that i wanted to give it a bit of a call out for because it's uh, it's been a really interesting story and one that not many people even who live locally knew about um and it's been really interesting to see how we can bring that history to life 
by looking back at, you know, what were the issues 100 years ago and how can we be sure that we're doing a better job now of making people feel heard and feel represented uh, at a local level. So, yeah, I've been really quite proud of, of the work that's been going on there. So I've tooting my own horn to an extent, really. Oh, no. but... you, you toot away, you toot away. You kind of reminded me um, of a monument that I saw in Malta, in Valletta, last year. And I'm going to butcher the spelling of this. Um, but it basically means the 7th of June. It's like the Seti Gueno. And it's a Maltese national holiday. So you go to Valletta, and Valletta is this ridiculously beautiful quaint um city and it's like the smallest capital city in europe there's only seven thousand people that live there but malta itself is like one massive urban conurbation i say massive there's only half a million people that live in the island of malta but in the nation of malta so when you say massive that's you know it's, it's all relative but it's urban sprawl across across this island but it's kind of beautiful urban sprawl a sandstone brick and Valletta is very charming and I was really surprised to see this monument and it basically said the Brits killed like some people like 1919 and and it really got me thinking that there is and this is allied to your point about commemorating loss but it's also to do with that language point that I made before is that when countries become independent, they look backwards for martyrs, for people who have shed blood for the cause, whether they, whether even led directly to independence. And there is something about forging a nation through that blood. And I'd never really thought about this until I heard somebody speak who was Irish. It's a professor, um, Irish professor, who basically said that the Easter uprising in Ireland was not needed. It was a waste of time. And and and, and having a, a scant knowledge of the Easter uprising, when it took place in Dublin, the, the, the general population of Dublin saw them as crackpots. But it was a British overreaction subsequently to when they took the post office building back that then there was a wave of sympathy but he was saying that you know the brit and he's irish by the way he's an irish national and he wasn't saying ireland should become part of britain by any stretch of imagination and and we had this argument and i was saying yeah but it's a national marker of sacrifice to say that we the people whoever the people are um we needed to forge and to fight against the other to solidify who we actually are and as i said so i bumped into this monument in valletta and i thought bloody hell i had no idea and it's not to minimize their loss we are talking about four people and it was some 50 years before independence but you're a young, new, thrusting nation. You, you know, you, you, you almost, it's almost beholden upon you to go, right, who sacrificed themselves for the idea of this nation, for this people? Yeah. And you go and create a monument, you know, because I'm, I'm sure as eggs is eggs. Ten years after the Brits fired into the crowd and killed these four Maltese people, nobody 
remembered them other than their family members, you know. But it just kind of chimed with me with you saying what, what you said and then going back to the whole language thing, that if you're going to say that we are independent, we are not part of an, another polity, almost by dint of that, you need to say, right, here's our flag, here's our martyrs, here is how we are distinctive, language, etc., etc. blah, blah, blah. And it's fascinating in and of itself. And it's also a little bit sad in and of itself as well, you know. But anyway, um, do we have any more stuff on the socials? Well, I just want to make a little uh, call out for the Flick app because that's um, very quiet. I only launched last month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a place where you can not only get the podcast, but also uh, create new conversations about things to do with it um but uh, in order to get going it, it does need more members and there'll be a link i'm assuming in the show notes so um it's uh, it's a, it's another place to have those conversations it can work off your phone if you're not a fan of facebook and not everybody is then uh, it's an option that uh, doesn't uh, sell your soul to uh, the facebook empire mm-hmm. yes it's free of influences from from Mr Zuckerberg. Uh, are we done then, Aunt Claire? I think we are. I'm just uh, going to pick my map of the month, um, and I think, to be honest, it's the one that shows you all the lightning because it's so cool. So Claire, um, I think it's time for us to fold our maps and maybe to go home. Yeah, I'm folding up my map, and remember the. Was it? The globe has no corners? <laughs> I've already forgotten what it was. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But I, wait a minute. I just thought, is she having a pointed dig at us because we are map corner? There's the philosophical, which is, the world, you know, the globe has no corners. Then we are map corner. Hey, Catherine uh-huh. Brown-Jones, you need to come back on here and explain yourself. Are you pointing a finger at us or not? I think, you know, maybe you're taking offence where none is meant. Bit like you earlier on then. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns